got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. This is What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revolutionary times. I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And I'm Emily Yates. And this week, we're going to be talking to my dear friend, Lauren Flynn. Lauren is a musician, a songwriter, a yoga teacher, an activist, and an awesome writer who's written a lot about trauma and narcissism. And she's just a generally fascinating and insightful person. So I hope that you'll get a lot out of this interview because it's a deep dive. It's been so liberating for me to address my own trauma. And I simply want to pass that on to other people and and give them hope that they can also feel liberated and in turn liberate others. I can escape the palm of your hand. We represent supply and demand. Oh, the prison cell. My dear friend, Lauren Flynn, who I think I've known for about a decade, I think. Yeah, that sounds about right, actually. Wow. Time goes by fast. Um, Lauren, I like to refer to you as the most interesting woman in the world. She's <laughs> just, <laughs> she's done everything from professional wrestling to uh, being a musician, singer-songwriter. She's an activist. She's a writer, a yoga teacher, I'm sure I'm missing some things that we will hopefully I was get in, into. Like, I was in two cults, I think. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I didn't know uh, about that. Why stop at one cult? <laughs> right? Why stop at one? Um, yeah, that's a pretty good summary. That's, yeah. Yeah. So Those I'm really. All the things. All the things. Really stoked to have you here, Lauren. So um, we'll just kind of jump right into it. So you had a really interesting journey from kind of working a corporate job in your 20s to getting into activism. So um, if you wanted to kind of share that story a little bit, that might be a good place to start. Yeah, the activism has been an interesting lens, um, especially lately. And um, I love talking about it because it's I feel like it's a really it's really important to me to live my activism. And so what I essentially did is I took my life that was very comfortable in corporate America. Um, I'd been working in hotel sales and marketing for about 10 years and I had worked my way up. I had, I was, I was climbing the ladder and I, in about 2004 ish, I started feeling, um, a little, I always say like a little office spacey, um, you know, when he just is like over it and I, I felt that, but I didn't know why I, I was from a, I am from a fairly conservative, uh, military family. I was like, wow, I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing. Why do I feel so unfulfilled? So I ended up, um, quitting my job without having another one because I just could like literally could not take it anymore. So I quit my job and then I went to Costa Rica for like a couple weeks and I came back and I had a call from this architecture office that, wanted to hire me. So I went and talked to them and they hired me and it ended up being 
So the ad was really unique because it said um, office manager wanted for architecture office must uh, for organic architecture office must love dogs, have no fear of foggy, windy roads, vegan lunch provided. And I was like, I know nothing about architecture, but all of those things sound really interesting. So I ended up getting working with them and it's uh, his name is Eric Lloyd Wright and he is Frank Lloyd Wright's grandson. So the, the Lloyd Wright family is a pretty amazing legacy, like architecturally, but then also just personally as people, they're all extremely interesting people. And Eric's wife was an activist. And so as part of the Lloyd Wright architecture kind of culture, they, they kind of like work together, live together. So it's like, you're just there all day for, you know, 14 hours. Some people lived on the property. It was this beautiful 24 acre like bowl on the top of in the Santa Monica mountains there in Malibu. And, um, we would sit every morning and we'd have coffee together and we'd talk about what's going on in the world. And, and it was very, very balanced for a work day. And one day Eric's wife, Mary, she said, uh, she was like, well, I'm packing up. I got to, I got to go to Texas and I'm going to camp out with Cindy Sheehan. And I thought, I thought, wow, that's crazy that you know her. Like she's all over the place in the news. And Mary was like, I, like, I don't know her. And for some reason that like, I was like, wow, she's just going to go camp out at the president's like vacation compound with this woman. And so that was so powerful to me that I, I ended up over the next couple of days, I organized my first um, peaceful demonstration on the corner of Topanga Canyon Boulevard and the, the PCH um, in favor of Cindy Sheehan. And we had a couple hundred people there uh, on the street corner and raised a lot of awareness. I had the press come out and I felt really energized by that. And it gave me a sense of purpose that I had never had before in my life. So that was in 2005 and little by little, um, you know, it kind of felt like it was in a cult because I started coming from a military family and then getting deeper into just like knowledge of, of some of the things the military is doing. It was a years long process of like coming out of my mindset of like shopping at the mall and eating fast food and all these things I'd done for years, which I gradually, I got rid of those as well, like as my activism. And I started basically like a cash only lifestyle. Um, and that was the beginning of it. And, uh, and so I, I, I still live my life in an intentional way that allows me to have time to be activist, like boots on the ground. And then I also am fortunate to get work here and there that involves kind of behind the scenes organizing and communications for different groups. So that was, that was kind of the start of my like new life. Like my awakening path of forever um, is really based on inspiration from other activists Banding the power of our voices and and banding together. I love that story for a number of reasons. That at first your your fearless uh, you know leap into the unknown. Although I'm sure it was not fearless. I'm sure there was there was fear. <laughs> but uh, I think that you know it really resonates with me that your first major uh, step off into activism was um, an anti-war protest. Um, I was actually about around the time that you were heading out that I was actually in the war that Cindy Sheehan's, even though you weren't in the military, having a military family, 
folks I know who grew up with military families have very similar, uh, kind of very similar traumatic experiences and very similar difficulties as, as people who are actually in using your voice. That, um, is, you know, your music, your work as, as, uh, as a songwriter and, uh, and a performer. Um, I would love to know more about how that has been part of your process, both, um, as an activist and as a, a form of self, self, healing and care it's a it's an interesting spectrum um most recently i was working for an organization i'm up on whidbey island um just north of seattle and off to the left a little bit um so i was working for an organization that was pushing back against military expansion on our island and i came up here because I had quit drinking. I was living in Los Angeles and Los Angeles is crazy if you're sober. So, um, I had to leave. It was just too much. So I came up here where it's nice and quiet and I wanted to finish an album that I had actually started writing in lions. Um, and I had, you know, like I was working for this organization. So when I released the album, I hadn't planned on doing a ton of like radio stuff around it, but our campaign was so successful with the pushing back against the military expansion that I realized that was a huge opportunity for me to utilize my platform um, to release this album and then go on different local radio stations and talk about what I do and why I do it, um, as well as talk about my music. So and with music to be able to raise awareness and have a platform of some kind and use any sort of popularity in order to speak to the things that are important to me. I'm, I'm also part of a group called the Topanga Peace Alliance and they're down in Topanga Canyon. And we've been discussing and, and watching films about a lot of police and, and fire um, corruption. And I've become very friendly with one of the gentlemen who hosted a conversation recently after we watched the Eric Garner story. And I, I asked him like, what, what do we do? Like, how do we expose this? Like, how do we really connect all the dots and like lead the horses to water? And he said, you know, and he's been doing this since the seventies. He said, you have a voice. He'd heard my music. I didn't even realize that. He's like, I've heard you on the radio you're already out there. That's, that's the key. He said, art and creativity is the way to use your voice. And so he's really encouraged me to shift that direction with now my lyrics. I'm working on an album right now that is, um, not geared toward activism. I mean, in some senses it is, but not so boldly. Um, but that's got me thinking about kind of how to incorporate that. And then with my first EP, the way that I used my voice was pretty interesting. Um, I was involved in a situation where, long story short, I got really drunk at a bar and I was followed home by a local who is in, um, who's in a pretty successful band. And I remember telling him that I wasn't interested in his he was sort of hovering around me. I wasn't interested in him because he was married. 
Um, and that was essentially the last thing I remember saying to him until I woke up next to him. So he, and then I found out event at some point in the night, his wife had come looking for him and then he actually sent her home. And the aftermath of that was basically the wife, um, threatening me like very severely threatening to kill me. I was doing, a, I was pounding the pavement in LA. I had just moved there and I had so many gigs lined up and of course they're advertised everywhere. So she was threatening to come to my gigs. She was threatening this. So at the end of one of her emails to me, she, you know, all of her emails were like blaming me. Um, even though she knew that I was wasted, um, she was still holding me accountable for the whole situation. And she said, uh, she said, why don't you write a song about how you ruin people's lives? And I thought, <laughs> maybe I should actually, that sounds like a really good idea. And so what I did with that particular album is, so I didn't have any recollection of the evening. She knew everything that happened, but I had to wait for three days to get an email from her. Like I was just like spinning for three days wondering like, what the hell happened? How did I get from, I think you're kind of creepy for having a wedding ring on and like wandering, like hovering around me to waking up naked next to you. Um, can somebody please help connect the dots? Well, she put it all in writing and sent it to me and it was atrocious. Like the, the things that occurred that night were, I couldn't believe I was reading like my own story. And I thought she has me all wrong. I mean, when that happened, I don't think I'd even been with anyone for like a year. So I thought she has me all wrong. But then I thought, you know what? She's seen like this much of me. She's seen a glimpse. And from the glimpse that she's seen with the information that she probably has, I probably do look like some kind of like. So after reading her email and, and absorbing all of her crap, I just kind of put myself into the character of a woman who would have this, you know, she was like, stay away from my husband. And I'm thinking like, why would I come after someone who is married and cheating on his wife to follow girls home from the bar? Like that makes no sense to me. But she mm -hmm. was also very defined by his identity. So mm -hmm. I put myself in this, uh, and, and I also, it's, I, I had no, I had no money. I had just come out of three natural disasters. So it wasn't like I could get a restraining order or take any action against either of them. It was just like, I was there by myself with this woman who lived five minutes away from me, threatening to kill me. And she, you know, threw it out there. Why don't you make an album about how you ruin people's lives? And I just thought, okay, that actually is a really good idea. So I put myself into character and it was kind of a method acting thing. And the, the lyrics just poured out and part of her rhetoric with me was that I would never sing in that town. I wouldn't sing anywhere in Los Angeles. No one would clap for me. Those are her words. Um, and no one would like me. And, uh, my initial reaction was to bail, was to leave town, but I stuck around. I wrote that album and I ended up going to open mics outside of the neighborhood I lived in because I didn't want anyone to know I was doing this because I didn't want to get killed. And <laughs> someone came out of the audience during that show and said, do you have a CD? And I was like, no, I, I don't have like, I'll, maybe I'll figure it out, you know, whatever. He goes, no, no, no. He said, I want to do that for you. He said, you, when you tell your story and you sing these songs, you captivate the audience. Like I've never heard an open mic crowd be so quiet and so involved. And he said, I, I think I have the musicians that'll help bring this to life. And, um, I think we could do it. And my first question was, well, what do you want? Because this is LA and I don't have any money. And he was like, nothing, you know? And, and he, uh, we palled around for a bit. We both had some like personal stuff going on in our lives. So we got to know each other. 
um, for like four or five months before we started recording and we're actually still really good friends to this day but the end of it was I ended up with this album and um I ended up playing it at every venue and every festival in the canyon um and I stuck around for four years and you know there's one of the songs uh, it is what it is people refer to as the the anthem for that town because it's just like well it's I call it my resignation ballad hmm. it's really powerful for me too when when we think about like finding our voice it was like I really had to it's like that it's just me I didn't have a band or anything so I would just show up and I would just sing these songs that were pretty specific and um uh, true (laughs) (laughs) and um like weirdly specific but also kind of funny um and and that was really freeing for me to be able to just make this album and um, and still to this day, like I, I don't talk about who it is specifically, but um, the the format of shows I'm having a lot of luck with up here is kind of a cabaret style. And um, I also did a little stand up comedy in Los Angeles. And so combining the stand up comedy with the music, I'm able to tell the story, which makes it less like sound less horrible, but it also sheds light on like what it really feels like to be sexually assaulted and like not have any money to do anything about it and have someone like threatening to kill you. Um, and this all happened a year before the me too movement came out, which was interesting Mm -hmm. because I had, I had started to research him because I didn't, I didn't know really anything about him as a person, um, outside of the bar because I wanted to know, like, is this, is this problematic? Like, is this something that he does all the time? Do I need to speak up about this essentially? And so, um, I did quite a bit of research on him and I decided to forgive him just overall for basically my mental health, but I just figured I can, I need to heal myself. That's more important than anything else. You know, done being triggered and and done with all the anxiety and the chaos and, and the, the death threats had sort of waned. Um, the Me Too movement hit, which had touched on a lot of things that I'd already thought, like maybe he does do this and maybe he does it because he knows he won't have any consequences and blah, 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 blah. And then the Me Too movement came out and then it hit again. And that sent me into like a a good another year, which eventually led to my sobriety, but it was a good another year of just like going crazy, like not having closure and not having anything to do and just kind of like squirming underneath this pressure it just was really challenging, but overall I felt like I found my voice in a really major way, especially since my first instinct was to just jump in my car and bail. But I didn't, I wrote, I wrote a passive aggressive country album. Um, (laughs) And it's actually, I hard to relate to that. (laughs) Yeah. I knew you guys were going to get along. about it is there's a huge country scene in Los Angeles and so what it actually also did it was it was kind of a gift in this way was it allowed me to go to these like jams that happen just about every night and and get like a little more ballsy about playing music in Los Angeles which is a really intimidating town and so to be able to go in there with these very simple songs and have a backline band and be able to communicate with all these musicians and and go in there with my songs and having people like them and request them like that did wonders for my self-esteem and bouncing back from this and then it also allowed me to kind of make a name for myself 
Um, so that when I eventually released more music, of course, there would be, you know, some people, but there was a lot of, there were a lot of questions when I released my second album because it is drastically different from my first album, <laughs> um, which I embrace, but it's been a long journey of finding my voice. You know, like you said, it's like coming from a military family and getting into military activism was like, just, I was shaking all the time for like years, you know, and then to have that kind of be so that was let's see that was almost 10 years later um it's pretty astounding to me as like an introvert and a nervous person that I was able to stand up for myself in such a major major way yeah I think I think that's one reason we get along so well is also introvert nervous person over here but um I I always yeah I always appreciate how open you've been sort of about your own self-inquiry process and how um good you've been at kind of turning these traumatic experiences into I don't know turning shit into gold in a way you know it's kind of like alchemy I think yeah we're all we all have trauma of some sort and I feel like it's one of the main keys to making the world a better place is for everyone to heal their trauma, identify their trauma and heal their trauma. Because I think it's the reason that honestly, we can just be so awful to each other. Um, and, and so for me, that's another form of activism is like, I don't want to get stuck in any sort of victimhood. I want to turn that into something powerful because I know my own power. Everyone has the same amount of power. Um, I, I think it's important that we, we do speak to our trauma. Like when I first started, when I first started getting sober, I joined a writing group and their home your dark to find your light. And it's a really interesting, um, thing that happens is the more I find that I'm like so specific and just candid about the things that happen, it really like holds space for the other person or the other people to be more vulnerable and to go within themselves and share whatever they have. Like the more that we can just be like, yeah, this is the thing that happened to me and it was awful. And like, here's how I dealt with it. And saying like, you know, I didn't always deal with it in the best way possible. There was a lot of drugs and alcohol involved when I first started on this path, because I also have childhood trauma. And then, as you know, I had three natural disasters. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I had to, I kind of had to learn to manage trauma as a survival mechanism because otherwise it's, it's such a, it's, it's such an influence on our behavior and our thoughts is the main culprit that we think of. We think of the thing, right? We think like, Oh, I was sexually assaulted or, oh, you know, my parents like beat the shit out of me when I was younger, whatever the thing is, we think about that. And so we think about our parents or we think about the person who assaulted us or we think about all the things that, you know, society wants to bring up for us. But the main thing is like, how does that trauma, how does that trauma affect your, you as a creative being and not just creative in the sense of like making art, but like creating, like manifesting your life. Like how is that trauma because ultimately it's, it's put there for you to blast past. That's my personal philosophy. It's like we, if we don't have trauma in our life, it's, it, it, in fact, I, I've had a couple of people say to me lately, like, I've never had anything traumatic happen to me. And I'm thinking like, there's no way, there's just no way. And, and the people, the two people who have said that to me lately are both raging alcoholics. So I have to think like, 
there's probably something in your past that you're, you know, not really facing um, that could be influencing your behavior. So, yeah, I mean, the reason I'm so candid with it is because it's liberating for me to address my own trauma. And I simply want to pass that on to other people and and give them hope that they can also feel liberated and in turn liberate others. Point about trauma being in all of us is one of the most uh, underrated understandings out there. I think who did a lot of anti-war activism and then took his own life after a few years of that post-traumatic stress as not a disorder but a natural reaction to an unnatural experience and the fact is that we in especially in this modern day society are having unnatural experiences all the time and we're having natural reactions to them that are uh, that are not understood or accepted by our culture or our society. So we look at those things as uh, as something that is special to us, first of all, and something that is is our fault. And that I think it it keeps those it keeps us all from not only finding a way to work through those things, but from relating to one another on a super fundamental level, which is that life is suffering for literally everyone at some point, if not all points. <laughs> and, and when you're talking about, um, about yoga and meditation and, you know, other forms of healing as activism, I think that's right on because when we're looking at this culture that we have, this with, you know, consumeristic mindsets that is to embrace our humanity. Um, if we don't want to just be numbers and cogs in, in the capitalism machine or in the authoritarian machine, is, is acknowledge that we need healing and actually prioritize that healing as more important than productivity bingo yeah and I think I think another important component is like the generations before us were not always super open to therapy or even the inward journey or saying or like taking ownership for something being quote-unquote wrong and so I I I think we are very disconnected from spirit and I think that um that is the key. Like you, you said something earlier about just being able to connect with one another on a human level. And I, I could talk about that for hours. I mean, I think there's just so many things, so many layers in our way. And I feel like it's sometimes set up like that. You know, it's it, when, when we really get together and, and we have conversations like this, where there's a lot of connection that happens and connection is really powerful. Everyone has a trauma. We talked about this. I had a yoga class the other day before 4th of July weekend. And I asked at the end of class, kind of jokingly, like, anybody got any big plans this weekend? And one of the gals said, she goes, well, I'm, I'm celebrating an anniversary. And we were like, oh, that's great. You know, thinking like maybe sobriety or husband. And she said, yeah, she goes, it's been 30 years this weekend that I 
um, fought off a serial killer. And it turned out, then she told this entire story about how she fought off a serial killer who's now on death row. Um, and she's, I mean, to look at her, you would never, ever, like, think that she had been through this. Like, hell, the guy had a torture barn. Like, it was hardcore, super fucked up serial killer. Um, And and then we all just kind of looked at each other, but then every single person in that room had some crazy-ass story about some kind of trauma. So it took this one woman being like, oh, yeah, here's this crazy thing that happened to me. And then every single one of us was like, wow. And it really shifted like the whole relationship of our class, because now we're kind of at this deeper level and we can all sort of like understand the various levels of like, it's especially interesting on an Island because on an Island you wear like all these different hats and then you're kind of under a microscope. And then, and of course you carry your past with you everywhere you go, but you know, people don't know that just by looking at you. So Um, yeah. So by sharing our trauma, it became very, it became a much more powerful experience to do yoga together. We understand about the common ground we all share as, as human people, especially when dealing with uh, trauma or crazy experiences. And there's a lot to be gained in our, our culture by keeping us, us, uh, feeling restricted from talking about these intense experiences. We don't want to upset each other. We don't want to find ourselves ostracized. We don't want to uh, make a scene. You know, I think a lot of us are aware of those connections, but we are living in a, uh, in a time and a place where that kind of understanding is being aggressively uh, crushed and we're trying to uh, we're trying to push past the the divisive rhetoric we're seeing all over the place that's keeping us from from remembering we're all we're all people and we've all been through all the things or some of all the things it's, it's an interesting time, too, because we're social distancing. Um, but I've found myself, even as an introvert, like, after a couple of weeks, I started calling people, like, without warning. I was just, like, FaceTiming people, like, hey, what are you doing? How, how is this affecting you? What, let's talk about something. What, let's talk about anything. I don't care. You know? It's like, so it's, it's kind of an interesting, like, dynamic to be in this space where we're all so far apart from each other in person. Um, but I, I have felt a lot closer to the, I felt like deeper connections to the people in my world, um, as a result of it, um, for whatever reason, I think it's, it's made it clear to me, like how important connection really is. Of course I had a lot of fear too. It's like, when you go through a natural disaster, you don't just lose your stuff. Like the whole city just stops the whole town. So I was like, great. At least in a natural disaster, I could reach out to people in other places and be like, Hey, you know, I might need a place to live or whatever it was, but now it's like, everyone's in the same boat. And um, it makes it really intense. So, mm-hmm. but my experience so far has been um, pretty positive. You know, it's, I, I feel really supported up here and I feel really blessed to be able to say that. See the separation between, um, you know, working on yourself and working on the world and trying to make, you know, the world a better place or your, your little corner of the world. Um, okay. 
And I think that there's a really big connection there, and I know you do too. So I wondered if you could kind of talk about that more. Well, I think what's the quote? Something, something, and I wanted to change the world, and today I'm wise, so I'm changing myself. Yeah, I think it's a Rumi um, quote. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel that really heavily. Like, I, I think when I first started activism, I really burnt myself out because I was running around like a crazy person telling people like our military is doing this and people are doing this and oh my god you you don't you don't even get it and when you do that you literally look like the crazy person and people are not super likely to be influenced by you unless they have been living under a rock and they're like oh wow really okay i'll jump on board you know so i learned over time that the simplest way for me to influence the world was by living my activism so when people would ask me like hey what are you doing now and like why are you doing this it was so much more impactful than screaming about the injustices of the world so for me that was a growth edge to not be so vocal about it which is still a growth edge for me um because sometimes it is like so crazy making to try to figure out like how people aren't seeing certain things that are so obvious to some of us. Um, but again, that has to do with everyone's on different levels karmically and everyone has a different perception. Everyone mm -hmm. sees things, they hear things differently. Um, so yeah, I think, I think working on ourselves is the, obviously the best gift that we can give ourselves. But when we work on ourselves, we also send that out to the people around us. You know, there's like the hundredth monkey theory that if 99 monkeys know the thing, then that hundredth person is going to know the thing just by absorbing it from the other 99 monkeys. So when we can, when we can like hold space for ourselves and, and we can embrace our healing, then I think people also start to pick up on that and they start to be influenced by the way that we live our life. And I think, I feel like that's how we work to change the world. But I also think that everybody has a different piece of the puzzle. Like you're going to have people on the ground with their signs and protesting. You're going to have people behind the scenes. You're going to have people living their activism. You're going to have people creating petitions and sending stuff in. You're going to have people on the internet trying to change people's minds. It's all positive in my mind. Layers. I mean, I, I've gone through different layers with my activism. So um, activism is actually a great trajectory for growth because there's so much to be done as a person with ADD to focus on one thing, mm. um, which I haven't fully won that battle yet. Um, but I used to spread myself really thin and now I'm realizing, okay, you know, if I'm doing this thing, then I, I need to focus on this thing and maybe not so much like this other thing. I do a lot of work on myself over the years, and I constantly am still, um, but especially, you know, I got into anti-war work right after getting out of the military when I was still very much attempting to decondition myself, didn't even know what needed to be deconditioned. Um, first, who knows, <laughs> you know? As I've gone through varying... Uh, varying you know levels of i've had to you know recalibrate constant process of trying to get in touch with my intuition and not be too uptight about what i find out about myself 
and you know adjust and uh, and then keep moving also you know and another aspect of of some of this work that you've done around trauma and that's relationships there's one thing you said that i wanted to i don't want to let it get away but you talked about honing your intuition and i think intuition and not only in activism but um I think it's something that we have sort of been cut off from, um, largely due to the the way that we live our lives, to the way like society is. Um, I, I think, it, like we were saying earlier, there's so many ways to to get information these days, and we're so inundated that I, I think when we're like like for me, if I'm researching something, um, like take you know Jeffrey Epstein for example, it's like when I learned about that like 10 years ago, I knew in my gut that whoever told me this crazy story about an Island was like, knew something was like, I felt it in my gut. But when I would try to talk to people about it, it was like, they were like, no, 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 here, I looked on Snopes and I did this and I did that. And it's like, there's so much information out there and you got to look at who owns the information, right? There's just like so many levels to it that our intuition is something that we really have to tap into. So it, when we think about narcissism, Nar- the effects of narcissism, the aftermath of narcissism leaves us with this anxiety that that cuts us off from our intuition because we suddenly are in this space where we're like, is this my intuition telling me not to, to talk to this like new person or is it my anxiety from this experience that I just had? So my narcissism was, um, I discovered in 2008 after my second house burned down, um, I went into therapy and to talk about the, the fire and the loss. And I was already on a pretty hefty yogic path then. And I had made this, I had asked the universe for a healthy relationship with non-attachment, ironically enough. I just forgot to bookend it after the first fire. <laughs> was like, okay, I got the message, you know. So after the second one, I went into therapy. Um, FEMA, FEMA gives you like 24 one hour sessions of therapy. So I was like, okay. So I went in and after like three sessions, I felt I was fine, you know? And the the therapist said, well, you want to talk about family stuff? And I thought, well, of course, like I love therapy. So we started talking about family. And and so my dad was a very, very angry, like very obviously like emotionally abusive, vocally abusive. Like, you know, he, he was the obvious person to, to blame, you know? And so as I'm talking to this therapist more and more, and and this is 12 years ago, he says, well, your mom sounds like a textbook narcissist. And in 2008, there was not a lot of information about this. So I was very defensive toward my mom. So I was like, no, 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 she is the good parent. And so over our sessions, I started to like read a little more about narcissism. And he basically left me, he's like, here's what she does. She like, she tries to lure you in and with something and then you move toward her and then she like slaps you and she drags the carrot away and then she like silent she leaves you she pulls away right until you come back to her and like you take responsibility for whatever and then the whole cycle starts over again and I was like yeah that's really cute you must have just gone to like a workshop about narcissism and this is like your keyword right now but like I'm not buying it so I had moved I was living in Santa Barbara at the time and I decided to move back to Colorado to really patch up relationships with my family because they everything was haywire. And within, I mean, before I even left California, she had fulfilled this 
she had done exactly what the therapist said that she does in every situation. But now that I could see it, I was like, oh, shit. But I still didn't believe it. I was like, wow, she really acts like a narcissist. This is crazy. So I got back to Colorado and there were like, she did it three more times. And so finally I started to, I started to have boundaries around what she was doing. And basically I, I said, Hey mom, you know, when you say this, um, I have, to, I do this and, and I rely on what you say. And so it's a little, um, it's very challenging for me when you don't follow through on, on what you say. And so I'm hoping that, you know, I, I approached it diplomatically with my new healing language and her response was what it always is, which is my life is easier without you because I'm so confrontational. Um, and she had said this to me before. And in that moment, I thought, you know what? You might be right. Maybe I bet your life would be easier without someone insisting on boundaries and accountability. So let's give this a whirl. So that was in 2009. I have not talked to her since. But what's interesting about having... Well, then after I left, there's there's so many levels to narcissism. But um, after I left, what I realized, I'd always kind of thought this, that I was dating the same person in different skin. And what I came to realize is that we think, like, at least I thought, like, we as women, we choose someone who resembles, like, our dad, like, whatever archetype that is and, and whatever that is. But the truth of it is, a lot of times we attract the relationship with our mother through our partner. And I realized that I was in these relationships with people who were high on the narcissistic spectrum. So they might not have been, my last one was a full-blown narcissist, but spectrum, which goes between vulnerability and narcissism. So I started to realize this. And so what I didn't know, when I stopped talking to my mom, I kept talking to my aunts on her side of the family, as well as my cousins. And it took me until my dad passed away in 2017. Connect the dots that even though I wasn't an active part of my mom's life, I was still the um, the scapegoat in all of her stories. And so they do what's called a smear campaign because basically the narcissist cannot be vulnerable. Like narcissism is the opposite of vulnerability on that spectrum. So the narcissism is always acting out of fear of being vulnerable and being exposed, having their emotions exposed. And so instead of having maybe like, a, I'm sure she had a sadness over not talking to me, but instead of expressing that, there was a sort of a smear campaign about how I'm an awful hippie freeloader was basically what I gathered. My family like thought about me. It took until the middle of 2017 when I set boundaries with the rest of the family coming after me with like these accusations. Like it was almost like they were reciting a plot line, which made me realize they are being fed stories by someone who's been out of my life for 10 years because they're what's called flying monkeys. So because I'm the enemy of my mom's story, I also have to be the enemy and everyone else's story. But what's extremely interesting is that the rest of the family has like major, major issues with my mom. But because I walked away and said, you know what, like, I don't take that. I'm not going to engage in the triangulation and the gossip and the blaming. I'm going to hold people accountable. And what was fascinating to me, you know, when I left Santa Barbara and went home with these tools, I was like, finally, I'm not going to be the black sheep anymore. I'm always the problem. But now I have like boundaries and all these things that these people must have that they're like, 
so frustrated with me for not having. Well, when I tried to introduce those concepts into a dysfunctional system, I was actually like cast out even more because things like boundaries and accountability are extremely um, threatening to a narcissist. It's hard to explain. There's, of course, a ton. You know, since 2008, there's been a lot of research that's come out about what a narcissist is. And they, you, they come into your life and they sweep you off your feet. And even though we're smart, we, we want it like there, there's some, there's some trick that they have and I don't know what it is, but it's like they just they get in there and they hook you from the beginning. And then all of a sudden there's like all these weird, subtle things. And then before you know it, you're second guessing yourself all the time. Your self-esteem is in the freaking toilet. Dysfunctional and awful. And because you're not hip to you're not an educated empath. And you come out of it with this very damaged sense of self. And for me, it was this awful internal compass because I'd been basically manipulated. And, and I feel like a lot of times, like, I don't like to talk about it too much because it feels like a victim mentality, like I was taken advantage of. But I also feel like the same with a natural disaster. It's like that I was a victim of that. Like that just came on out of nowhere. And even though I'm like rising above it, I still need to talk about how victimization occurred because narcissists do this Um they plan, they do it intentionally. They, they groom their victims and it's, it's awful. And, and what's even worse is like watching these guys years later, the high on the high scale, you know, the high, high end of the spectrum, watching them do this to other women. And then knowing that you probably weren't the other, the only one at the time you were in a relationship with them. Um, it's very, it's, it's awful. You come out of it so disassembled. I've really had to fight for myself and that, you know, becoming, getting sober was kind of the last step for me because it was like, okay, I've fought for myself for so long. Um, it wasn't even about like self-medicating or anything. It was actually, it had a lot to do with activism with no longer wanting to just give my mind over to these people who were capitalizing on killing me essentially mm -hmm. and exploiting, you know, people in the industry. I mean, the tobacco industry is awful, but being sober to me meant that I was actually going to fight for this, like the, the girl inside me, the woman that I'm becoming, because I've been through so much shit that I owed it to myself to give myself, you know, I started drinking in high school, like everyone else did. And I stopped when I was 42, you know, so that's 30 years of like brain formation and behavioral uh, training and influence that has alcohol as a crutch and like every drug, you know, so it's like this piece of really owning myself and, and fighting for myself was like, okay, I've been through hell and I'm not going to let that get the best of me. And I need to take away these things that have an actual like biochemical effect on my body and give myself a fighting chance. You know, there's a reason that I went through all this shit. I'm a writer. So I know that at some point I will have a book or just like a bunch of, you know, articles or whatever it is like, but I know that I can put it all together and I can make sense of it all in a way that will be of service. But yeah, narcissism, it is 
hard for people who haven't been through it or don't know that they've been through it. It's really hard for them to understand how awful it is and just like how your body feels when you're going through it and you're like doubting yourself because you you know what's going on, but you're being told by this person that you're in an intimate relationship with that like the thing that you know is happening is not happening. There's all this gaslighting going on and it really fucks up like your internal guidance system. Like it's really, that to me is the biggest tragedy that it separates us from ourselves. It's so deeply separation from our, our inner truth is one of, has been, for me, that separation was issue that I had to, I had to heal from and, and reclaim my self. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, while we're in this quarantine situation and I think it's incredibly impressive that you have managed to stay sober throughout it. And congratulations. Two and a half years is a huge fucking deal. Just FYI, like, like on the regular for that, it's a huge deal. And being real in general, I think is one way to counteract all the gaslighting. You know, we are all experiencing it on a top down level from our current administration uh, in this country right now, someone acts toward you like they are, you are vilifying them or you are victimizing them when it's the other way around. That's so destabilizing. And we're seeing that and hearing that coming from our president and everyone who is holding him up on a regular basis. So, I mean, you recommend for people who are right now is their first conscious experience with being gaslit or with working on on dealing and confronting with a narcissist on a major scale what are some of the the helpful ways that you've found in approaching that i have found that the only fail-safe way to do this is to go no contact and so (laughs) You can't do that with the president, right? (laughs) And so that's a great question. Like I, what I try to do is at the beginning, I was pretty vocal about when I figured out that he was just a hardcore narcissist and like, it was also kind of triggering for me. And then it was shocking that like, I realized, oh my God, we have so much work to do because people will defend him in the face of facts, you know, like he didn't say that. And you could take a quote and go, no, he literally said that. And people will still be like, no, 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 which tells me that they're, they haven't healed their trauma and they haven't found their ability to call people out on shit. Mm-hmm. So I think the less we can get worked up, I mean, right now it's just a show. The, the less we can get worked up about every fucking stupid little thing that he throws out there for us to be, because it, it, like, it, most of it goes nowhere. Oh my God, Trump is going to sign this thing. I can't believe he's going to roll that. Blah, 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 blah. And then like, you know, a week later, it's like, well, it's blocked. It's like, it's yeah. just, to me, it's like just keeping us traumatized by having me get so worked up on by social media, which in my world is one giant side up because I think, I think there's so much to be gained from the shit that people share online and like how emotional they get. And so getting back to your question, like, what can we do? It's so tricky because it's such an individual thing. And I I feel like it's 
I feel like that's much to his advantage is it's like you have to be able to, to me, the key for everyone is to be teachable. Try to separate ourselves from, from our ego, because I think in order to be teachable, you have to realize that like you might've been taken a time or two before. And so, but that realization helps you to understand that like when you're being taken like right now. And so it's really tricky. I think, I think the best thing to do is for everyone to just like individually work on their stuff and ignore the president, at least on like what I wish in a perfect world is that people wouldn't respond to anything on social media, except for letting other people know that something is going on. And then instead of continuing to engage, go to moveon.org and create a petition. You know, instead of making a comment on someone else's thing, just figure out who your elected officials are and make a call to your elected official. Like, stop getting in, stop engaging because someone who is believing Trump, none of us are going to convince them. You know what I mean? It's like, we're just, our healing is on a different level. There's like such an expectation for people to defend, you know, like I posted something yesterday about this crazy cop in Boulder. Someone made a video about all the, the just awful stuff that he's saying and somebody posted underneath, they're like, well, you don't know what it's like for these people. And have you ever done a ride along with them? And da, 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 da. what do you think that, da, 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 da. and I know they wanted me to like engage and be like, well, I think that, and I just wrote, Hey man, you're entitled to your opinion. Thanks for sharing it. Mm-hmm. And that, that took me like years to get to that point where like I wasn't shaking and I didn't feel like I had to go back and defend my point or whatever it was. So I think, I think the key to everything is like getting unbusy, honestly, and stop stop getting so hooked on stuff that doesn't matter because the reality of it is, is people are being exploited every day. People are in pain every day. Um, there's some, there's extreme corruption going on. Um, and people don't seem to place that as a top priority. Yeah. And that's, that's troublesome. Yeah. (laughs) It's really troublesome to me, too. It's like people sometimes seem more upset about what Trump tweets than what he actually does. Yes. And I, yes. I don't know. My whole thing with Trump is I've never felt this like deep emotional like thing with him. To me, he's just kind of an archetype of the American shadow. It's not surprising to me we have someone like that as a president. I realize not everybody feels that way. And I a certain amount of privilege in not being super Mm -hmm. triggered by Trump. But I'm more like. You know, I'm upset about the environmental regulations he's rolling back. I'm upset when he's gassing protesters. Those are the things that I'm upset about. But mm-hmm. it's like I do watch people on social media. And I've been really watching my own social media time lately because I realize it's kind people, of a black hole. Yeah, it's it like is. We feel like we're doing something, but we're actually doing nothing. It's like they can yeah. throw stuff out on social media and then everybody gets all worked up and you have all this energy and you really feel like you're doing something but you're not, you're just throwing your energy into a void. Totally. So that's why I'm thinking like, just if you see something, look into it, get off Facebook and like Google it and look into it, see what's going on. Look at like different activist area, like regional activists, see what's going on, get plugged in there. Figure out a way to counteract the thing that you're upset about instead of arguing with someone whose mind isn't going to be changed. And you're just going to like literally waste your energy. And I think our most powerful, like, uh, currency in in this climate is our creative force, our creative mm-hmm. energy. Not just like like I said, not just like making a song or a painting or whatever, but like the ability to create what we want in life. And if we're busy throwing it away on social media and arguing with people, 
that's not creation. You know, creation is like doing something about it and then stepping away and then working on yourself and then dipping Mm -hmm. your foot back in the pool and seeing what you want to do and then stepping away because like, that's, that's like our creative power can be so suppressed by distraction. Like, you know, as a codependent, I worked really hard to save people in the past and, and what this therapist said, he goes, you know, if, if you're, if you see someone in one of those revolving like glass doors, like you're, you can't go in there with them and tell them how to get out. Like you're just mm. going to be walking around in circles with them. What you have to do is you have to stand on the outside so that they see that there is an outside and, and they come to realize that there's a way to get out and then they'll change from being like frenzied and in a circle and freaking out into like, well, there must be some way to get out. And then you, you stand on the outside and they see you and then they come out eventually, or they don't, you know, it's like, but we're not going to make a difference getting into the fray and, and arguing about things with people who are there to have their ego fed and not necessarily learn something and be teachable. Very, very few people I've found I can have like conversations with where we're both in a teachable place yeah. to change each other's minds. I find people really want to like, like this girl I was referencing yesterday, like she really wanted me to go, Oh, you know what? No, I haven't been on a ride. I should, you're right. I should schedule a ride along with, right. <laughs> with my local police force. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. This is about this guy, like making these awful comments and like using force and like, and, and like encouraging other officers to like, he had a day called Use of Force Friday. He's like, get out there. And if you're not showing up like this, and he showed, like, showed some video of some dude just like, like just coming by and like clotheslining a dude down to the ground. It's like, that's not what you do like, at all. There's no circumstance that that yeah. is appropriate at all. So a ride along for me is not a, I've been in the backseat of a ride along. Like, I know what going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, yes, you're in good company here for, yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Like, we're, we've yeah. all been in the backseat of a ride along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a growing club these days, though, you know? Yeah, it, is. it really is. It really is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I only did it once, though. I feel pretty lucky. Um, yeah. But yeah, I I wish there was a solution. Like I wish we could go no contact. I mean, I I don't think we'd be able to rally everyone together, but it it would mm-hmm. be amazing if everyone would just be like, "Screw it, we're not we're not liking it." I mean, imagine if he tweeted and no one responded. Yeah, I often have this like, and I know this is a fantasy, but um, you know, sort of like the spiritual path I'm on is a lot about where you put your intention and where you put your will. Like, what if just collectively everybody decided, fuck it, we're going to do this and we're going to let them do that over there by themselves. They can go have shitty American capitalism. I I think the powers that be have that knowledge. I think the power, and this is where my tinfoil hat goes on, you know, all these different things that keep us fighting with each other. And it's so ridiculous. I mean, I, I asked this monk, um, his name is Lama Funsho, and he's from Bhutan, and, and I've he's been a mentor of mine for over a decade now. And he came to stay in Santa Barbara, so we went for a walk on the beach. And at the time, I was studying astrophysics, and I was also um, getting a lot more experience as a musician. And, and this was just before my house burned down in Santa Barbara. And I asked him, I said, what do I do? Like, I, I had started astrophysics because I had serious questions about, like, us as individuals and like our place in the universe but then music also like allows for this sort of creative transmission and like and he said well the main thing that we need to do is like 
get along with each other on this planet. Difference or any of us could do would be to change the, I thought it was interesting, change the attitude around our elders um, Mm -hmm. and like embrace them instead of, you know, putting them into nursing homes or whatever, but which is also a privilege. I mean, that nursing homes are freaking expensive. Mm -hmm. And then to be able to take care of an aging parent or grandparent that takes a ton of time. Yeah. And a lot of people are working two or three jobs, you know, so he's like changing that paradigm where we embrace our elders and we embrace their wisdom um, and just their history because history has a way of changing, you know, when, when these people outgrow and they go away, we don't know what they know unless it's passed down, you know, like it used to be Mm -hmm. tribally. And so I do tend to think that there is there is a lot going on that forces us to connect in these deep ways that would help us realize like, oh, if we all do. I mean, could you imagine how ridiculous it would be if we were like attacked by another, like an extraterrestrial whatever and we're not even getting along on our own planet? To me. But I also would love to ask you more about the work that you're doing with the Sound Defense Alliance before we uh, before we take off today. I stopped working for them in November. Um, oh. But hmm. what happened, it's because I got burnt out um, and then I, I wanted to, you know, I had released an album in the middle. So it was a very fast-moving campaign and basically they were pushing against this uh, military expansion, which is happening on the north end of the island, um, but it's kind of creeping down a little bit. And and I always think about Coronado Island and wonder, it used to be this much of like military and now it's just the whole island. So it, one of my wishes was to be able to get a job that, and so this popped up and it was like, it couldn't have been more perfect. And so we hit the ground running and because I didn't know a lot um, about this process of expansion, I was asking a lot of questions and I was asking them from the perspective of like maybe just a normal resident who hasn't been fighting this fight that they've been fighting for at least 15 years. Military wants to expand. There's like all these things that they need to do. And and one of the things is a um, environmental impact study. And within that, there's uh, what's called a section 106, which is uh, just a portion that requires or asks for feedback from the community, but it's not something that people no, you know, they, they don't announce like, hey, everyone, we're thinking of adding 40 jets to our thing and like quadrupling our touch and go flight operations. They're not out there doing that. It's just it's something that seems as though it was already done uh, before the, pay, you know, the ink was even dry. But so there were there was this uh, section 106. And so the first thing I did is I started a social media campaign, just making people aware of that. And um, we put together, you know, how do you contact these people and who are your local elected officials? Like making everything as easy as possible for people to just like push a button. Um, we got this database program called Every Action, which is uh, literally traces every action it does. It creates online actions like petitions and, um, you know, like letters to elected officials. It's all, everything is programmed in there. So someone can just sign up for your database but there's a code in there. And then when you send out a thing saying contact your elected official, they click a link and it goes directly to their, to their elected official. Um, it went from a small group, uh, on the Island to a larger regional group that included Canada, um, as well as, you know, down to Seattle, we connected with other communities where they're seeing a lot of the same stuff. Like a lot of the hoops are not being jumped through. Um, there's a lot of pollution, um, there's different, there's sort of like a, it seemed like there was like a, 
it was the same thing happening in, in every single town where the military is doing this. So basically, we started this campaign and we the issue was that they had a fleet of jets um, and then they changed the jet and then they increased the flights and the number of jets. So it went from like a fairly noisy plane to um, the EA-18G, which is a Boeing uh, electronic warfare device. And so what the electronic warfare device does is it goes, it flies over enemy territory and it shuts down their electronics, basically. So there's no communication for someone else. Much louder than the jet that was originally here. People, there are residents here who are clocking decibel levels of 120 decibels over their house. And these flights, they, they go nonstop sometimes from like three in the afternoon until midnight. And it's over schools, it's over hospitals, it's over residents, it's over the Olympic Peninsula. It's, it's in the quietest spot in the US basically. And they're just coming in and they're adding all these flights. So we ended up generating all the support and we got people engaged. And I created a campaign called uh, This Is Why We Fight, which engaged the community to send in their stories about how this was affecting them, their decibel readings, their videos. The attorney general of Washington to sue the Department of Defense, which was a huge, huge thing. The thing is, like, I feel like if they don't have any resistance or at least any accountability at the beginning, um, then where does it stop? And so to me, it was about just like harnessing this energy of everyone who is all coming from a different place. Some people, it's it's the noise. Some people, it's property values. Some people, it's, um, you know, it's pollution. Um, for some people, it is holding them accountable. And in one of their talks, it, it was kind of fascinating to me. They just got to the end of it. There was no agreement. And the, Na the Navy just said, well, you know what? We just don't, we're just not going to agree. And then they just moved forward with what they were doing anyway. <laughs> and then, and then, come to find out even before it was they like okayed the expansion the contracts for the hangars where these new jets would be had already been awarded to someone and so the hangars were already being built you know it's like and, and that's to anyone who's been doing military activism for a while like we already know how that goes and but I think it's important even even though we're up against the department of defense it's important to show people that we're listening Individual campaigns like what you're talking about are huge. You know, a lot of times people don't know how to get involved and the military industrial complex is a beast and a behemoth. And it's, it's hard to know how to focus, but if we do focus on what's happening locally, every single one of us has a base, uh, nearby. The United States has more military bases than any other country, both inside and outside our, our, our borders and um and every single person in this country i think is is being impacted by that by the military industrial complex and often by the military in their town doing something to harm their quality of life sound pollution um you know chemical pollution uh, land land uh monopolizing you know looking local and seeing how we can make that small bit of difference that we can make, even if it's just having a conversation with somebody in town and getting a few people together to write letters to the editor or call uh, a 
elected officials. It's, it's huge. And so thanks for, for bringing it back into the both bigger picture and the, the narrow focus on that. I really appreciate that. It's always been important for me. You know, I have family members who are still in the military. And my thing is, like, I definitely, I think people who go into the military do it because of, like, they, of what they think the right reasons are. I don't think they fully understand um, some of what's going on isn't always what they might think is going on. So as far as, like, you know, it's, it's, people who, who do this kind of work are often accused of being like anti-patriots or being against the military. And it's like, I, I support anybody who signs up for this. I mean, that is some intense dedication to yourself and to your country. Um, and, and as my moral obligation to those people, it is to make sure that the military is doing what they say they're doing and that they're held accountable for, all the things that we mentioned, you know, being in these communities and working with the community instead of coming mm-hmm. in and bullying the community. That that was like the mm-hmm. underlying issue of our whole campaign was mm-hmm. like the Navy moves in and then they just start bullying, you know, they get their they get their foot in and then they just like dig in. This military is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're a bully. They they really are. And and they can be because they have the money and and the accountability, it's all internal. So it's like yep what it's it's just this crazy monster that is just flailing around and so i think that's why it's important because people are literally putting their lives on the line for what they think is patriotism and sometimes it's not that and that that's the piece that's important to me and that's a really i completely agree with you into our first episode we talked a lot more about the military industrial complex and reasons for people joining and and all of that all of this ties in i think you know we have a lot of cognitive dissonance in this country and a lot of uh, exploitative systems that are so deeply entrenched we don't even realize that they actually have always been intended to exploit and <laughs> yes. yeah. never been intended to do anything else yeah so <laughs> right you can't so, ask uh, them to be what they're not on a down note i'll let sarah sarah I'll let you <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i'm always sarah, really great on ending things song. on a cheerful note that's why i'm called typically that's why i'm so popular at dinner parties uh, <laughs> same, I'm so same. popular yeah. parties. So popular. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was this <laughs> SNL skit called Debbie Downer, and I was like, "Oh, I feel that it's Rachel Dratch." Yeah, totally. Like, yeah. Totally. I, was like, I felt that Jane in the room before when I bring something up that no one wants to talk about. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's why it's so me. important. I'll just find another. You know, maybe the dinner party isn't the right venue for it. So I'll just yeah. sing, and <laughs> people can come and be, you know, hostage to my stories. And I think that's that's how we we make change. Like we find that thing that is that is our art and our creation. Because, like I said earlier, no one wants to hear me screaming at the top of my lungs about military expansion, but they might be curious about why I live my life the way that I do, and then I can throw it in. Or they might think, "Oh, she has a really great voice. Let's go see her." And then, surprise, you get inundated with a bunch of information. <laughs> didn't know you wanted. And Bait and switch. Laugh it. Yeah. <laughs> we're activists now you're a petition you know but it's like and even also you know giving loaning myself to um you know I have a kind of a different model about 
about getting paid for music than, than a lot of musicians do, but it, it works for me and I refuse to work for free unless it's something that I believe in. And so I will definitely give my resources and my voice literally to nonprofits or fundraisers. Um, and that's another way, you know, aside from ambushing an unsuspecting audience, um, <laughs> it's also a good way to, you know, add some fun to something, um, through music and also be aligned with it. It's about, it's just about creating a life. I think that's our biggest form of activism, creating a life that's like in alignment with what you want. And, and it takes a lot of sacrifice. Like I don't have a lot of the nice things I used to have. I used to have so much pride with like, I'd always be the one like surprising everyone by paying the check at dinner, you know? And like, I can't remember the last time I did that. <laughs> really can't. So it's, I've had to sacrifice a lot, but I feel like, you know, the, the, the contributions that we make when we make those sacrifices and we live an intentional life where we're actually creating intent our activism. Yeah, mm-hmm. however that looks like for people and whatever their context is, I think that's always a place you can start is trying to bring some intention and self-awareness to yeah. your life and your actions. And, so. and nothing is too small. I mean, yeah. I like I talk a lot about, you know, devoting my life to it and all these things that I'm doing, but it's like there's nothing too small. Even Like just creating a petition. You know, that was the first thing I did with the uh, Cindy Sheehan thing. I created a petition and I was so like jazzed on the response I got from that that I thought, well, I'm going to just get a bunch of people together on a street corner. What the heck, you know? And I'm going to use my business background to do a press release. And so I made a press release about it. It was all, like, very official. And I had, like, three photographers there. And then there was a front page thing in the Malibu Times, and then there was sort of, like, a buried thing in the LA Times. I mean, it really got out there. And I thought, okay, that was the sign that I needed out the gate to go, you can make a difference. So it just starts with one thing, even if it's just, Googling your elected officials. You don't even have to contact them yet. Just do something toward that and connect with like-minded people and get energy off of that and open yourself to learning and growing with that. I think that's a perfect place to put a bow on it. Um, Where can people find you? Where can they find me? Well, now that I've talk so much shit about the military. I don't know that I want to be <laughs> 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 Like literally, what is your address and what hours are you home? Can you drop a pin on Google Maps? <laughs> well, I, so my website, my music website is the place where you can find all my links to social media, but it's laurenmakesmusics.com. Um, and that's also my YouTube handle, Lauren Makes Musics, and it's my Facebook handle. Um, and then on my website, you can find like the Spotify and and all the other stuff. And then, um, I just started, uh, Instagram yoga, which, or yoga Instagram page, which is yoga dot with dot Lauren. Somebody already had yoga with Lauren. So it's yoga with Lauren with dots in the middle. Um, and I did that because it's, you know, with zoom and with the online ability to do classes, people have been really that helps them not be anxious 24 seven. Like if you haven't been through something and you're in quarantine right now, like if you haven't been through something really traumatic, this is a really traumatic time for people. So I started that Instagram page just to, you know, post memes and quotes and inspirational content and then give people a way to contact me if they wanted to do um, some work on just connecting their, their body and mind and even focusing on, you know, becoming a little more intentional. So that's how you find me. Sweet. Well, I'm sure we will have you on again because there is so much more we could talk about.
What the fuck did we learn from Lauren? Quite a bit around healing from uh, the trauma of narcissistic abuse and life shit in general. My goodness. She's a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, I've um, I've been friends with her for a long time. I've just always appreciated how her commitment to self-inquiry and to just really like digging deeper than the surface level of things. I feel like anybody who's living like extremely authentically and with that goal of looking inward and being, you know, able and willing to critique themselves, but without being hard on themselves, you know, like I think that's the fine line that I've been trying to learn to walk is like, how do I, how do I critique myself and learn from mistakes without beating myself up? And, uh, I think she's a really, really wonderful example of that. Yeah, for sure. I always appreciate it just like, like you said, like she kind of models how you can be real with yourself without being a bully to yourself, which I think is a really hard thing to do because yeah. it's sort of all one way or the other, which is, again, our culture. Everything is this like super crazy polarity. Nothing can be middle path. Um, yeah well and it's there's this I think I I don't want to say narrative because I feel like it's more of an unspoken um sense around the idea that if you're critiquing yourself you're opening yourself up to attack or um kind of like how we were talking about with the uh how liberals always say, let's not have a circular firing squad. Like if we don't talk about the things that we should be critical about, like nobody will notice, you know? <laughs> and, and, and I feel like we apply that to ourselves too. Like if I just don't talk about the things that are a problem for me, then they won't exist and nobody will notice. But like really when we don't talk about things and we don't address them, they're even more noticeable. It's just that we don't have any, real way of interacting with how how other people see those things yeah and then it kind of links back to that sort of unresolved trauma and people that act it out and all of us act out I think to a certain degree unresolved trauma so having a skill set and some kind of container to be able to look at that as well as look at yourself honestly and hold yourself mm -hmm. in a loving space you know that's the thing that like I feel like it's so hard for people to admit that they're wrong and also admit that they don't know everything right now. So and like, hard. I've been in that place uh. too, where I was super attached to my narrative around me having to be like the smartest person in the room and like overcompensating probably mm -hmm. for the fact I'm like a blonde chick, you know, wanting to be like, <laughs> I'm going to prove them all wrong. So, not to like, and you have, yeah, <laughs> we'll see. But I think getting into a place of radical uncertainty with yourself is just, it's mm -hmm. so freeing. You're like, you know what, I, this is what yeah. I think today. And it doesn't mean I don't have an ethical base that I work from, but I am willing to be proven wrong. And exactly. I'm not going to be too attached to the outcome as long as it's generally serving the trajectory of, you know, helping humanity hopefully pull itself back from the brink of this shit show. <laughs> exactly, because if we're not, acknowledging the things that are wrong both within ourselves and you know within our society and within our government and our systems of 
you know, control that we live under, then, you know, there's nothing that we can do to address them. We all were basically trying to, you know, pull the, pull the sheets tightly over, you know, a giant pile of steaming turd. You know, when I was in the army, it was, it was a very similar mentality. I remember I was asked to write an article for the Post newspaper once on, it was a training exercise that we were doing in the field. And um, I had to interview the division chief of staff, who was a, a full bird colonel, who looked just like Dr. Evil, to the extent that somebody uh, photoshopped his face on Dr. Evil's body, and I had to look real hard to <laughs> tell the oh, difference. Wow. Yeah, anyway, so this guy, I walked up to him, and I'm like, hi, sir, let's have a conversation about the exercise, because that was how I would do it, you know? Like, so can we talk about, you know, some of the successes, some of the failures, some of the things we did right, and some of the things we did wrong? And, uh, he was like, he was like, email me your questions. And so I emailed him. And then I got, I heard from my um, colonel the next day uh, that the chief of staff uh, does not appreciate that you use the word failures. Uh, <laughs> we're not talking about failures. And I'm just sort of like, well, okay, sir. I hated it when I had responses like that. That's why I did not get promoted. Um, past the automatic promotions <laughs> but it was really it, it blew my mind I was like are we we're, so we're just going to pretend that the things we did wrong didn't happen and act like that means nobody noticed that we did anything wrong okay cool all right check <laughs> very good analogy to sort of I feel like how maybe not most people but the most vocal people in this country seem to approach reality with whatever little reality yeah. tunnel they're in. I really liked Lauren's metaphor for the revolving glass door and how you can't mm -hmm. go into the revolving glass door and save someone. You have to stand outside and show them there's an outside. And mm -hmm. um, I kind of think it, I've been trying to approach the, it makes me very frustrated when I feel like people are stuck in these old stories, whether it's the two party system or whether they're into a certain conspiracy theory that I feel like is probably not healthy for them. Everything from mm -hmm. Russiagate to QAnon, which that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, like I know people yeah. that are all over the place in their reality tunnels. And I am like, I just I always tended to be the person that wanted to present them with facts and wanted to try to argue back. And that never worked. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of getting to the point where it's like, well, maybe better use of my energy is just to stand out here and be like, all right, I love you. But you're in this door. Yeah. You're on this little cycle. And when you feel like stepping off the cycle, I'm I'm here in the sunshine. Right. But then that also sounds egotistical because I'm sure people look at me and some of the shit that I believe in and they're like, damn, she is stuck in a weird ass revolving door. So, <laughs> you know, not <laughs> to be like, I am the only one sense. that knows what's going on <laughs> or anything like that. But, you know, that's it's I'm trying to approach things in my life that way because I just get so frustrated sometimes like really you still believe in the two-party system you still believe this you still I cannot believe it like with everything going on yeah. that you would be attached to that narrative still why like how is it serving you is it just that you don't want to be like you know what I believed in something and it turned out to not serve me anymore like is it really so hard to just do that <laughs> like say exactly. that it's like no one's gonna care dude 
the world's yeah. on fire. Like, no one's going to be like, oh, damn. I guess that's really, like, such a big fucking deal that someone decided that, hey, I supported the Democrat Party my whole life, or I supported the Republicans my whole life, and now I've realized it was bullshit. Like, no one's going to think about it for more than two seconds. They're probably going to be relieved. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's interesting because it's this, like, we have this resistance always to whatever someone is trying to tell us that we don't already agree with. Um, and when, when we're resisting, we think that we are taking somehow the easier way, but really it's so much easier to just stop resisting new information and knowledge and just find a way to, you know, process it, like take it in is, can this apply? I had parents that modeled in a lot of ways to like ask, you know, ask questions and not necessarily make assumptions, but I still definitely grew up with like, this is the good team. This is the bad team, which Mm kind of made sense maybe at the time, but now it's like, that doesn't make sense anymore. It's all the bad team. Mm-hmm. And realizing that, I think, is the first step towards healing, even if it's a tough realization. <laughs> like, right. we are alone. Nobody cares about us. You know. And that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. We can manage. <laughs> we'll figure it out, hopefully. Hopefully. I think it's easier to figure it out when you're not laboring under this illusion that someone else is going to take care of you if you just pick the right person. Freeze up your energy to focus on other things. Right. Like, if if we didn't have a group of people running our government who were completely unwilling to ever accept that they have ever been wrong about anything ever, uh, we would have an entirely different world. I think humility and the ability to to look inward is something that this nation has always lacked. It's the American way. And that yeah. serves a purpose <laughs> in maintaining power. It's the kind of hegemonic storytelling that keeps things in place. If we aren't asking questions, if we aren't accepting the fact that maybe not everything we know is true or that we can be wrong, but that also that we have the power to change course with new right. information then, you know, it serves a certain narrative. But um, that's why, yeah, yeah, I'm glad I know people like Lauren that kind of will help pull me out of my own mental boxes. And I think model a really great way to live your life, even if the conditions of your life are different, you know, even if you're like raising a family or you're working a nine to five, I think that there are ways to just approach your life cognitively um, that are kind of like how she does it, where it's less this constant process of self-inquiry and looking at how your internal um, state, you know, affects the actions of the people around you and what you can create and put out in the world. Yeah. And that sort of way of being in constant self-inquiry is in and of itself, as she was saying, activism. It's, it's a radical act to be self-inquiring under a system that refuses to be self-inquiring and that takes advantage of people who won't, you know, that, that was one of the things that resonated the most to me that, you know, that she was talking about is, you know, living your life in a way that's in good faith with yourself and in constant curiosity about yourself and constant, you know, 
reflection and evaluation that's not just critique and negativity or being hard on yourself like that's that's huge that's the system that we're trying to build so you know when they say be the change that you want to see that's how you do it I think totally Thank you all so much for joining us. If you like what you've been hearing on What the Folk, please consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes because that boosts our signal super much. We'll be back in two weeks. We hope you will be too. Till then, let's all uh, take care of ourselves and each other. Here's another song by Lauren Flynn. This one is called Wire.